Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're continuing, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke shows Jesus as the perfect man. He is the one who has come to be the final sacrifice for sin. He is the substitute. He is our Savior. Now, we've been seeing that final night that Jesus spends with the disciples before he goes to the cross. We have seen the Passover meal. We've seen he's told them that one of them would betray him and that all of them would deny him. Well, this morning as we continue, we're seeing Jesus as he's praying in the garden, and it's a really hard time. It's a sad time because he's preparing to go to the cross to take the sins of mankind for each of us. He's going to do that. Jesus prays, and his men sleep. Last time we saw Jesus praying, not for his will, but for the will of the Father. And this morning as we continue, there are really two things that, that stand out in the passage. One is we're going to see the details of the prayer. We're going to go back a little bit, talk about the Father's will, see how that fit together. And then we'll see the betrayal and the arrest. We'll see how that ties together. There's so much just in these few verses that uh, and we about truths about our Messiah and our Savior. We want to make application from our lives. There's a lot here. Well, have you ever heard somebody say this? If I could see a miracle, I would believe. If Jesus would just do something, if some miracle would happen, I would believe. Well, is this true? Will a miracle make people believe that Jesus is the Savior and trust in Him for eternal life? We've seen earlier already in the Gospel of Luke, back at chapter 16, that Jesus says that miracles do not make people believe. Jesus said that if a person was to rise from the dead... That would not make people believe. In fact, he said this, if they do not believe the word of God, they would not believe even if one would rise from the dead. As we study this morning, we're going to see that Jesus shows his great power. Right here, they're going to come to arrest him in the garden, and he's going to show his power by doing two miracles. And those who come to arrest him, they see these miracles, but that doesn't make them believe, and we'll see how that ties together. They do two, he does two miracles, and they still arrest him. So this morning, we see Jesus in the garden. We see his praying, his betrayal, and his arrest. And for all of us, we think about the fact that he's, he did this for us. He is our Savior, our substitute, our sacrifice. May we gain from our study in this section. Well, let's begin. Remember what's happened. Jesus has been spending this last night with his men, with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And think about it. He's had the, they've been in the upper room, and they had the Passover meal, and they finished that. They had a prayer. They left, and they've gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. They left Jerusalem. They went out what's known as the eastern, aid, they get, the eastern Gate. They came down the side of the mountain called Mount Moriah or Mount Zion. They went across a little valley called the Kidron Valley. They went up the side of a hill called the Mount of Olives. It's had olive trees all over it. They came to a place, or they've come to a little place called Gethsemane, which is a little garden where there's an olive press there. And that's what Gethsemane means, the place of the olive press. They'd come there because they, obviously they'd gone there a number of times. That's where they went because we're going to see it. In fact, as you look at verse 39, it says they came to this place as was his custom. And so they're there, and uh, we'll see what happens. Look at verse 39 just to get a little quick review. It says he came out, proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. Now, he goes to this place, which ever, that's where they went, and we saw last time that they got there. There's 11 of them. Eleven of his disciples. The twelfth one, Judas, has left the meal early. He's gone to the religious leaders, and he's going to betray Jesus. He's going to bring them back to find Jesus and arrest him. That's the plan. We don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if Judas first went back to where the upper room was, went up there with these people and found out, whoops, 
They're already gone. And then Judas would say, well, I know where they're going to be. They're going to be on the Mount of Olives. And so Judas is on the way with a very large crowd to come to arrest him. That's the plan. Now, what Jesus has got, he's got his 11 men with him. And what he did is he stepped away from his 11 men and he chose three of them, Peter, James, and John. He said, you three come with me. And he got those three with him. He told the others to stay over there. He got the three and he told those three, be praying. And then he moved a little bit further away to pray himself. That's the plan. Look at verse 41. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. So he told those three to be praying. In fact, he told them, pray that you won't enter into temptation, because the temptation is to, betray, is to, uh, to deny him. We know he's already told them. He said, you're going to deny me before the night is over. You're going to deny me. Peter said, I will not. And then he said, Peter, before the night is over, you're going to deny me three times. And they all said, no, we will not. And so now they're in this garden. Jesus is praying. He's moved away from the three. The three are praying. The others are over at the side. And we're going to see what happens. He prays to his heavenly Father. Now, as we look at this passage, let me break it down for you, kind of put it together. Uh, Jesus prays in the garden. We'll get back and get a, we've, we've already seen verses 39 and 40, but he gave the instructions to disciples. And then we're going to see the prayer, verses 41 and 42. We mentioned it last week. I just want to touch on it this week. But the prayer, he says, if you would go back, the prayer is that he wants the cup to pass, but nevertheless, it's not his will, but the Father's will. Then he goes on, and, and, and this is still in the section, angel, this is the only place in the scripture in this night that uh, only the gospel of Luke is the only one that tells about the angel coming to Jesus and then he continues to give instructions to the disciples. Then we'll see part two of this. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. We'll see the betrayal as, as Judas comes. We see Peter pulls out the sword to use it and we won't get, we'll just stop about verse 51 today and we'll tie it back in next week but we see Jesus confronts verses 52 and 53. This morning we're going to again look at the prayer and then we're going to see the arrest. Now as we focus on this prayer, there are really two parts, two things that stand out. One is he says, let this cup pass. And, and he's saying, really, I'd rather not go through this. And we'll talk about the cup in just a minute. But then he says, but not my will, but the Father's will. Well, let's see this. Look at verse 42. This is Jesus in the garden praying, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, it's the first class if in Greek, which is if and is true. He says, if if you're willing, and he would be willing. He says, if, if you're willing, let this cup move away from me. But, but bottom line, it's not my will, but your will. See, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later in the passage. Now, notice what he says, if possible, remove this cup. Well, what, what is he talking about when he says the cup? Well, the cup was a picture of suffering. It was like taking this and, you, and you're going to drink it to the end. That's what they'd say, drink it to the bitter end. The cup was cup of suffering. He says, if it's possible, I'd rather not go through this suffering. Well, what is he talking about? Well, there are two aspects of the suffering. There's one which is physical, and the other is the spiritual. There's the physical suffering and the spiritual suffering. Let's think about physical. We all know that Jesus was taken and beaten and bruised. Isaiah 53 said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. He was crushed. One of the Old Testament passages says he was, he was marred so much that you could not recognize him. We know that he's about to go and be beaten. And if you saw the, the passion of Christ, you saw what, what was all involved. He's going to suffer physically. And many believe that when he says, let this cup pass from me, he's saying, I just don't want, I don't want to go through the physical suffering. There's people who've said, well, Jesus is God. It didn't even hurt. Yeah, it did. It did. He's a man. He's the God man. And so he's about to go through great physical suffering. But then there's the aspect of the, of the spiritual. 
both physical and spiritual. And the spiritual suffering is this. He's going to take the sin of the world, the sin of every human being, past, present, and future. He's going to take the sin of mankind on himself, and he is going to be separated from the Father. See, the suffering is to be separated from the Father. From all eternity, the Father and the Son had been in perfect fellowship, but now at a point in time in history when Jesus is on the cross, when he takes the sin of mankind, he will be separated from the Father because the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. Jesus is going to be separated from the Father when he takes the sin of mankind. First Peter 2.24, it says that he bore in his body our sins. You realize every sin that you have ever done, that you do now, and that you'll ever do, and any human being who's ever lived, who lives now, who will ever live, every sin of every human being was placed on Jesus Christ at that point in time in history because he is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. He took the sins of every person. And to take the sins of every person, he's going to be separated from the Father in a, in a fellowship that's never happened. He's always had this perfect fellowship with the Father. Second Corinthians 5.21, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's powerful. When Jesus dies on the cross, and we'll see it in the, in the future in this passage, we know he died on the cross and paid for our sins, he will be separated from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. That's why on the cross he says, My God, my God, why have, you, why have you forsaken me? My God, the Father, my God, the Spirit, why have you forsaken me? Because he lost fellowship with the Father and the Spirit because he took our sin upon himself. Realize the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's why in this garden we're not even able to grasp what's going on because if you, we'll go on and read the passage in just a little bit and this, this, he has to send an angel. God sends an angel down to strengthen him. There's sweat falling down just like drops of blood. It, he's fervently praying. We don't understand what Jesus was experiencing as he's about to go to the cross. As he is about, first of all, to suffer physically but to suffer spiritually to be separated from the Father. The question is, why would Jesus do this? Why would he do this? Well, the first, to pay for our sin. To pay for sin. There has to be a payment. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. There has to be a payment. Jesus Christ died in our place as the satisfactory payment. Not for our sins only, as I quoted a while ago, but for the sins of the entire world. So why would he do this? Why would he die there to pay for sin? But there's a second, and that is to save us from separation. He came to save us. You understand that Jesus is the Savior. You're not the Savior. See, I talk to people all the time, and they think they're the Savior. Now, they don't say it that way, but what they'll say is, how do you go to heaven? Well, I try to live a good life. Oh, you're the Savior? You're going to live a good enough life to get to heaven? The answer is no, you cannot. We aren't the Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He died to save us from separation. He died on the cross so that we won't have to be separated from the Father. Anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ, who will trust in Him, they have immediately eternal life. Most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, be separated, but have eternal life. So why would Jesus go to the cross? Why would he drink this cup? It was to pay for sin and to save us from separation. He would take the cup and suffer both spiritually and physically. Notice the key to this thing. If you are willing, verse 42, Lord, if you are willing, remove this cup from me yet, yet, yet. Not my will, but yours be done. He came to do the will of the Father. That's why he came. What did the Father want Jesus to do? God so loved the world, God gave his Son. 
Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The will of the Father is that Christ would die in our place, that He would be our Savior. We see the substitution of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He's the just one, we're the unjust. He died in our place. I quoted a while ago, John 3.16, But as God, who so loved the world, that's us, that He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay for sin, that whosoever anyone would believe in Him, would trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, would not perish, be separated, but have eternal life, be with Jesus forever. That's the plan. I hope and pray that every one of you in this room have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you have eternal life. That's why He came. And so he says, look, it's not my will, but yours be done. I, I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to listen to this for a second. Because we say, well, what, what Jesus came to do, the will of the Father. This is John chapter 6. Uh, I think I've got the verses. We'll put them right 38 through 40. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. But, but verses 38 through 40, Jesus says this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that all he has given to me, I will lose nothing. I will raise them up on the last day. That's his plan to save people. And then he goes on to say, for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. Is that incredible? He says, I came to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is to die on the cross and pay for the sins of mankind. And this is the will of those who, he, who believe in the Son, they would have eternal life. I want you to do this. Hold your place for just a second. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 26. I want you to see what happens while Jesus is praying. Matthew 26, and we'll start about verse 39. So if you just turn over there for a second. We've got just a couple of places to go today because when you look at the Gospels, as you know, each one of the Gospels is written for a particular purpose. Gospel of Matthew was written to show that Jesus was the king. The Gospel of Mark was written to show that Jesus is the servant. The Gospel of Luke was to show that Jesus is the perfect man. And the Gospel of John was written to show that Jesus is God. So each one of those Gospels has certain events in it. They don't have everything. So what we want to do, if we want to see all of the things that are happening while Jesus is in the garden, we have to go to some other places. I want you to see this in Matthew chapter 26. Look at verse 39. This is when he was doing the praying. Okay. Notice it says this, verse 39. He went a little beyond them. That's when he told the guys to, to pray. He fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, that's what we've seen, but notice. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not watch with me one hour? And remember, he told them to be praying. He goes over and prays, Father, if, if possible, let the cup pass, but not my will, but yours. He comes back and they're asleep. And he goes, Guys, could you not stay awake just for a little bit? Could you not pray? He goes on again, look at verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, <clears throat> your will be done. Again, he came and found them what? Sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. He came back a second time and they slept again. He left again, verse 44, went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still Sleeping and resting, behold, the hours at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Go back to well. Go back to Luke 22, and we see that here's Jesus. He is praying. Luke doesn't tell us this, but three different times Jesus came back to Peter, James, and John, and they were all asleep. 
They kept falling asleep. And, you know, it's a very powerful thing. You know, you think, well, I think I'd be praying. Well, have you ever started to pray? And the next thing you know, your head is somewhere and you're going, oh, what happened? Well, that's what they're doing. They're saying, I've got to be praying. And they keep falling asleep. The spirit is willing, but the what? The flesh is weak. Well, look what happens. Because Luke is the only one that tells us about this. Verse 43. Now, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Luke shows us the ministry of the angels and the life of Christ. You realize at the birth of Jesus Christ, what happened? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, and behold, an angel of the Lord came upon them and said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy to all people born this day in the city of David is, is the Messiah, Christ the Lord, the Savior. And then there was this whole host of angels saying, Glory to God in the highest. Angels were there at the birth of Christ. They're there throughout his life. And notice here in the garden, God sends an angel from heaven to strengthen him. Angels came to Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. An angel comes to Jesus in the garden at the end of his ministry. God sends help. Notice verse 44. And being in agony... He was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Agony, sweat like great drops of blood. Do we realize the anguish that Jesus was going through? What's going on? What's the issue? Couldn't we just say, look, you're you're God. You know everything. You know what's going to happen. But Jesus is the God-man. What we call the hypostatic union, the union of deity and humanity have come together in one. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He is going to the cross. He is going to suffer physically. He is going to suffer spiritually as separated from the Father. And he's in agony as he is about to do this because he knows it's not what he wants. Because if you say, what do you want? He said, well, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be separated from the Father. I've never been separated from the Father. But it's not his will. But the Father's will. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently and sweat like drops of blood falling upon the ground. What's he about to do? He is going to save us. That's what he's going to do. He's going to die on the cross to be the Savior of the world. This is the plan from the beginning. You have to realize that God said he would provide a Savior. In the very beginning, we're studying the book of Genesis on Sunday nights. We're now at about chapter 7. But in chapters 1, 2, and 3, basically chapter 3, mankind sins and falls. And God makes a promise to man that he's going to send a redeemer. It's called the seed of woman. I want you to see this flow throughout the scripture. That in Genesis chapter 3, there's the seed of woman, which is the promise of the one who will come and be the Savior. In Genesis chapter 12, this one is described as the seed of Abraham, which will bless all the nations in the world. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, he's called the son of David, who is the Messiah, the Savior, and will sit on the throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then in John 1:29, John the Baptist points Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's going on? Jesus is about to fulfill the plan, beginning all the way back in Genesis, where God said, I will send a seed, a a redeemer, to redeem mankind. It's about to come to pass. Jesus is about to go to the cross in this passage as we study in these next couple of weeks. He's going to the cross to die for us. He is preparing to be the sacrifice, the substitute, and the Savior for each of us. Now, what happens? He He prays, he comes back, and what does he find his men doing? They're asleep. They're asleep. You know, sometimes we think, good gracious, we have the desire to study and to grow and to serve, but sometimes we just fail. 
Sometimes we say, I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to study. I wanted to get up. I wanted to do this. But sometimes we just fail. We can never put confidence in ourselves. We put confidence in God who is the strength through us. Notice verse 45. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Now notice, sleeping from sorrow. This is, of course, the third time that he comes back and he finds them and they're sleeping and it's from sorrow. What are they sorrowful about? They've now put this thing together. They know he's going away. He told them in the upper room, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He's told them he's going to go in and come back and get them, but they, they know he's going away. They know that one of them, and they're not even sure who it is, they know that one of them is going to betray him. They also know that every one of them are going to deny him. Now, they don't believe that. They said, we're not going to deny him. Now, he said we would. He's never been wrong, but we're not going to hold to this one. They know that he's going to be killed. He's told them he's going to Jerusalem and be handed over and be crucified and three days later rise again. He's told them that over and over. Things are not turning out the way they thought. That's why they're sleeping from sorrow. This is their last night with him. He's leaving. He's going to die. They, they're beginning to get this, and they're pretty sad. So in verse 46, he says to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Remember, the temptation is that they're going to deny him, and the pressures are going to come. Now, we're not going to see it this morning, but you know what they're going to do? They're going to arrest him, and they're going to grab him, and when they do, all the guys run off. They all run away. And Peter, three times before the night is over, openly denies him in front of people. They say, you were with him. I I don't even know him. I'm sorry. I don't even know the man. And we say, oh, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'd ever do that. I don't think, aren't there certain sins you think you'd never do? You're fooling yourself. You're capable of any sin. Just put you in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're going to do the wrong thing. So don't think. I wouldn't have done what Peter did. I wouldn't have done what those guys did. I wouldn't do what this guy did. We're capable of anything. Don't put your confidence in yourself. And so he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew 26, verse 40, he says, get up. The betrayer is at hand. It is now time. Judas is there. All the way through the Gospels, Jesus has been saying, it's not my time. It's not my time. It's not my time. Now he says, it's time. Watch verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. Now, while he was speaking, Jesus said, the betrayer's here. While he says that, here comes Judas in the crowd. A crowd coming, Judas is one of the twelve. He's leading the way. Now, we find in Matthew chapter 26 that there had been a signal set that Judas said that when I get there that night, it'll be dark. There'll be a bunch of people there because there's at least 11 other guys there with Jesus. He said, when I get there, the one I go up to and kiss that's the one. Because see, he wanted to make sure they got the right one because it's going to be dark. There's a large crowd of people. No, you know, Just all kind of confusion. So Judas says, I'll go straight up to him and kiss him. You'll know that's the one to arrest. That's the one to get. That's the plan. Now, he's leading the group. Following behind him is this large crowd. And they've got clubs and torches and swords and there's Roman soldiers and there's others. And and notice what happened. He comes up to Jesus and he approaches him to kiss him. In verse 48, Jesus says, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? See, kiss was supposed to be 
you're my friend, you know, in that culture, a lot of times he'd kiss on both sides, and, you know, they, that's, that's the way that, you're my friend. He comes up to Jesus to say, you're my friend. And Jesus said, so you're going to betray me, pretending to be my friend. I want you to see something that Luke doesn't show us. You know, I said earlier that Jesus is going to do two miracles. He's going to do two things this night to show who he is, and it doesn't cause them to believe. I want you to see one. Hold your place in Luke 22 and turn to John chapter 18. That's the next book toward the back of your Bible. And just turn to the next book and go to John chapter 18, and we'll start about verse 2. And I want you to see something that's not recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But it is a powerful event. John 18, verse 2. I hope you're there. Here we go. It says, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Remember, this was his custom. Judas is going there, and he knows where to go. He says, I think I know where they'll be. We used to go there a lot. And so he's taking the crowd there. Notice how they're described. Verse 3. It says... Judas, then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, a Roman cohort was 600 soldiers. They got Roman soldiers coming. We'll see in one of the other Gospels, they've also got some of the temple soldiers. There were, there were Jewish men who acted like soldiers who guarded the temple area. Some of them are coming. Also, it says there's the chief priest... And some Pharisees, and they're coming with lanterns and torches and weapons. They're coming to get him. They've been wanting to get him for a long time. He's embarrassed them over and over because they'll come trying to trick him and fool him, and they'll ask him some kind of question or something, and he will answer them, and they'll make them look so foolish. They want him dead. This is their chance. They got Roman soldiers with them. They got guards with them. They got torches. They've got shields. They got clubs. They they got swords. They're ready to get him. Think how many people's coming to arrest one man. One man. You know, they don't realize this, that all he has to do, he can speak and call how many angels, as that song used to say. He can do a whole myriad of angels. He can do, he's going to lay down his life. They're not going to get him. They're not grabbing him and pulling him off like, I don't want to go. He's laying down his life. He lays it down, he takes it back up. They think they're in control. We're fixing to see something. They are not in control. They think they are until this event. Watch what happens. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming, verse 4, upon him went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, we can't tell, but the best we can tell is Judas may have come up, kissed him, and then stepped back. And so then Jesus stepped forward, looked at this large crowd, and said, Who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Notice what they say. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, verse 5, he said to them, I am. And Judas also was betraying him, was standing with him. He says, I am. Now, I want you to understand something. I am is the name of God. Do you remember when Moses was talking to God and he said, who shall I say, who do I tell him sent me? And God said, tell him, I am who I am. I am sent you. I am is the name of God. The Hebrew word Hayah goes back to Yahweh, those same words, that same root. It's the ever-existing one. And so when Jesus says, they said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I am. That's the name of God. Look what happened. 
So when he said to them, verse 6, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay, 600 Roman soldiers, all the temple guards, the chief priest, the Pharisees, Judas, every one of them. What did they do when he said, I am? They drew back and fell to the ground. Let me tell you, who's in charge here? He is. He shows this miracle of his power. Now, what if you were in that group? Would you think, who is this guy? I I think I'm going home. I don't think I need to be in this group tonight, right? Isn't that what you might think? You see his power and his majesty. He lets them know that you know this, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This is just a foreshadow. He said, I am, and they all went down and fell to the ground. He is in control. Back to Luke. Look at verse 49. Uh, verse 48, of course, Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And, of course, Luke doesn't even record the, the event where Jesus said, I am, and they all come fall down to the ground. And then he says, when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, Peter and, and the other guys, they all thought, wait a minute, they're fixing to get Jesus. They're fixing to get him. And so when they saw what was going to happen, they looked at Jesus and said, Lord, shall we use the sword? Remember, we said last week that he talked about swords and being ready for battle. And I think we were talking last week, we said, we think it was a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces, darkness, spiritual forces in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6. And so when we said this, Peter said, what about the sword? And one of them, before Jesus could even answer him, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now that one is Peter. One of the other gospels says Peter pulled out his sword. The other guy, the slave of the high priest was a man named Malchus. And Peter went to get him. And a lot of times in those days they would hit a sword and they would try to hit somebody right in the top of the head and kill them. Just split their head open. And Peter went to get him and missed and got his right ear. And you see the guy going, oh my gosh. And the guy him just cut off his ear. Now let me tell you what could have happened immediately. Every one of them could have been killed immediately, including Jesus. Those Roman soldiers could have attacked. They said, this is, this is a battle. This is a fight. Get him. Get them all. Kill them all. Because that's all they care about anyway. They can say, we were attacked. We came up here to talk to these people, and they tried to kill us. That's what they could say. See, Peter's thinking, I'm going to defend Jesus. It could ruin the whole thing, you might say. What could have happened? There could have been massive slaughter. Jesus says, verse 51, Jesus answered and said, stop. No more of this. No more of this. Why stop them? Two things. They would be killed. And what was the plan? For Jesus to die in a garden? To die on the cross. To take the sin of mankind. To be lifted up. That's what he said earlier. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be what? Lifted up. See, he's not going to die in a garden. So Jesus goes, stop. Everybody stops. No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This is the second miracle. One, I am, they all fall down. Here's the second one. He just reaches over to that guy and goes, and the guy goes, I got a ear. That's a miracle. That shows his power. He's the God of all creation. 
We can do anything. If you're Malchus, you know, you know if I'm Malchus, I'm going, thank you, and I'm leaving. Because I don't, I, I'm not going to mess with this man. I mean, he's the, look what he just did for me. He healed him. Jesus, in the time of his betrayal and arrest, still takes care of others. He's taking care of his men. That's why he stopped it. Because he already told Peter in one of the other gospels, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Put the stuff up. He didn't want them to die. At least not then. And then he takes this slave who is coming out there with the high priest and the others to arrest him. And he could have let the guy bleed. He could have said, well, you're going to go through the rest of your life with just one ear. But he didn't. He healed him. He always is there for us. He always takes care of us. In the midst of the trials and the problems of life, Jesus will always be there. Two miracles. He says, I'm, I am, and they all fall down. And he heals Malchus. It is now time for Jesus to go to the cross to lay down his life. What have we seen? Jesus prays for the will of the Father. He says the cup of suffering. He talks about nevertheless, my, not my will, but your will. He's going to take the cup, the cup of, of suffering, which is both spiritual and physical. An angel comes to minister to Jesus. It's now time to wake up. He says, wake up. The betrayer's here. The crowd comes. And Jesus shows his power with those two miracles. One is by saying, I am. The other is by healing the, the slave and the disciples. They're going to try to fight. And Jesus stops the whole thing because the plan has to be fulfilled. Well, let's see. Let's, what are some applications? Let's think about applications from our passage. First of all, understand the suffering of Christ. Now think about that. The cup of suffering was twofold. It was physical because he's going to go uh, be be bruised and crushed and wounded and beaten. Sometime, if you want to, just read Isaiah 53. And read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is really a description of Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53 is how they bruise him and wound him and beat him and, and, and all of that. So if you want to read that sometime, you'll get an idea of the physical suffering of Jesus Christ. But there's also the spiritual aspect of it. In Romans 5, 8, how he's going to be separated from the Father. First Peter 3, 18, he bears in his body our sins. And he, the just for the unjust, he took our sins. And so there is not only a physical suffering, but a spiritual suffering. Never forget... That he suffered spiritually being separated from the Father, which he had never been separated from. He did that for us. He did that for you. And he did that for me. That's why C is he came to fulfill God's plan. That's the plan. He's the Lamb of God to come to do the will of the Father, to die and rise again, to pay for sin. It's not his will, but the Father's will. He is the sacrifice, the substitute, and the Savior. The second thing is just realize this, that Jesus is both God and Savior. He is God because he's in control. A, he's in control of, uh, of all these events. These, the people aren't in control. He's in control. He's the one that said, uh, I am, and they all, they all sit down, basically. Jesus is in control of all events. He's the one who lays down his wife, life. He's the one who's going to drink the cup. He is the one who's working all things. B, he declares that he is God by saying, I am, and by healing the servant, and every knee will bow. That's what he does. The third thing to, to think about is rest in the fact he's always here for us. He is. He is the Savior. He is the one who died on the cross and paid for sin and rose again. And for any human being, every human being who ever has existed and ever will exist, He is the Savior. And whoever will believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I hope and pray that every one of you in this room 
that if somebody said to you, do you think that you would go to heaven when you die, that you'd be with, be with God? And you'd say yes. And they'd say, why? You'd say, because I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that He died for me and He paid for my sin and He rose again. He's the one who gives me eternal life. It is that simple. The second thing is to remember this. He's always, he always cares for us. He's always with us. He took care of his men. He took care of that slave. He'll always be there for us. He will never leave us or forsake us. What should we fear? He is our strength. He is our shield. May we rest in Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, who died for us and who's always with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for these great truths. Lord, help us as we continue to see Jesus in the garden, the rest, the suffering. Lord, may we understand the suffering, the, the physical things that Jesus went through, the spiritual separation, being separated from the Father and the Spirit, and, and how all that came about. Lord, may we never take it for granted. And thank you for Jesus and the fact that he came to fulfill your plan, that is to die and rise again and give eternal life to all who believe. Lord, thank you that in that garden, Jesus showed who he is. He's the God and the Savior. He controls all things. He said that he is the I am. He healed the people. He did all of these things. Lord, we know who he is. Thank you that he is always with us. Not only is he the one that gives us eternal life as a gift simply by faith, but he always cares for us. He'll never leave us or forsake us as we go through life. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.